After experiencing the transformative power of a regular meditation practice, it's natural to feel inspired to share this gift and guide others on their own journey of discovery through meditation. Join Buddhist teacher David Nickturn and Duncan Trussell, comedian and creator of the Netflix animated series The Midnight Gospel, for a free online event on Tuesday, May 7th at 6 p.m. Eastern Time. They'll discuss the profound practices of mindfulness Dharma Moon's renowned Mindfulness Meditation Teacher Training Program. Get certified by Dharma Moon to teach meditation, lead group practice sessions, and work with individual students. Visit dharmamoon.com slash beherenow for more info and to reserve your spot for the free online event with David Nickturn and Duncan Trussell. Welcome to the Jack Cornfield Heart Wisdom Hour. We are delighted to share with you Jack's innate common sense wisdom and his clear open heart. If you are interested in supporting Jack's podcast, go to BeHereNowNetwork.com slash Jack. It is a time that people all around the world, at least in the Northern Hemisphere, um, quiet themselves as well as we get closer to the darkest day of the year um, and there are all the different kinds of holiday celebrations that go back to ancient times and that are there fostered in all the different cultural and spiritual and religious traditions and most of them have to do with light and lighting candles and fires and in some way trying to bring light not so much I mean it's sort of superstitious and inaccurate to think that it's light to bring the light back um, what it is really is an acknowledgement that we carry an inner light as well as the outer light and that we can also trust that light and in ourselves and others and that the light will return and it becomes really important um, in these times because they're tough times outwardly I mean we all have our personal dilemmas but it's also kind of visible the growing divisiveness in the world the growing anti-immigrant the growing fear-based um, tribalism nationalism racism um, climate change um, the yeah the lack of protection for women in many ways in the world um, the cultural anxiety that we all live in um, and this is part of what we carry in our hearts you know one of the things that's grown out of spirit rock all kinds of interesting projects um, and beautiful things that people are doing who get quiet here and quiet their minds and tend their hearts and then go out and do the kind of expression of that stillness leads to caring for the world so we've got the inside prison project and the inside out prison project different prison projects that I've been involved with in time and others from spirit rock and um, dear friends who work in the prison 
And this is the story um, about how many incarcerated women, more than two-thirds, are in prison for nonviolent, low-level drug crimes or property crimes. Um, and this person who's doing prison work said one of the incarcerated women I was working with was a young black mother who was serving a long prison sentence for writing checks to buy her three young children Christmas gifts without sufficient funds in her account. She seemed to me like a character out of a Victor Hugo novel. She tearfully explained the tale to me. I couldn't really accept the truth of it until I checked her file and discovered that she had in fact been convicted and sentenced to over 10 years in prison for writing five checks, including three to Toys R Us. None of them was for more than $150. And so we carry this. We know about the kind of um, horrors of the prison system in our country, the largest in the world. Um, we know about these things, um, but they're not just tough for us in some way um, to know about. Um, but we also carry those together with our own personal struggles. And it becomes part of our, this is our human life. You know, we read about or hear about the news of people on the border and refugee camps on our own border. We don't have to talk about the Rohingya or the refugees in, come pouring out of Syria um, or the Uyghurs. Um, it's here in the U.S. and homelessness. So I'm naming all these things because they're part of the tough times that we have. Um, and they touch our hearts too. It's not like we know this and completely turn away um, there's something in us that cares, and it makes it harder, actually, to hold it. So, how to get through this? How to get through times where the light seems to disappear, as it does in the turning of the seasons and the earth around the sun to our winter solstice, but also outwardly tough times and times of darkness. The Buddhist texts begin with a phrase, um, O nobly born, O you who are the sons and daughters of the awakened ones, do not forget who you really are. And this is a, an invitation to remember your own Buddha nature or true nature, your original goodness. And the scientists who study uh, butterflies caterpillars. We all know how um, a caterpillar will go into a cocoon and then do some change and come out with wings and fly away, which is already kind of astonishing that that happens. But what most people don't realize is they don't go in there as a caterpillar and then sprout and grow wings. They actually dissolve themselves so that if you at a certain stage after they've made the cocoon, if you were to open it and look inside, it's a mass of liquid cells and there's no caterpillar anymore there. There's just all the cells that made up that animal. And then there's a specific type of cell in that chrysalis that scientists have 
just have um, named imaginal cells. I just love it. Because imaginal cells are the ones that think they can fly. <laughs> and they're the ones, the, the first cells that organize all those other cells into a new and different organ organism so that when it's time, it will come out of that chrysalis as a moth or a butterfly and fly away. And this, in a way, is what our Buddha nature, our true nature is about, that we have in our own hearts that kind of imaginal cells, um, that we each have a capacity for awakening, for dignity, for freedom, for greater compassion, to gaze upon this troubled and unbearably beautiful world with a great heart of compassion, with the eyes of compassion and wonder and the eyes of wisdom to see it from the heart of understanding. Because here you are, you're born into this human realm, into a human incarnation. It's kind of wild. Nobody gave you the manual when you came in, right? And it's like, well, how do I do this as a human being? How do I live beautifully as a human being in this mystery. I just came back, I've been traveling for a bit, um, and was helping with my beloved Trudy. She and I were together in Hawaii helping teach a retreat with Ramdas, author of Be Here Now. Ramdas is now 88 years old, and he's kind of frail. He's been in the wheelchair for 20 years, and um, he can't speak very many words this year. He's sort of losing his verbal capacity some. Um, but he was there. And Krishna Das would sing beautiful kirtan in the evening and we would teach and do meditation, Trudy and I and others. And then we'd also hear from people in the group. And there was everything, you know. There was people's gratitude and triumph. We've done this, I've practiced, I've whatever, there's somebody who talked about having, came up and talked to me about having um, two-year-old triplets. I said, my God, how did you get away to even come to this retreat? You know, and all the beautiful things. And then people also standing up and talking about loss, about a child who died or someone who's in the middle of struggling with cancer. And in many cases, they talked about how nourishing it was to be on this retreat and come together to chant and sing and meditate and be in the field of love and practice. And the end of the retreat, which I've been teaching now for a number of years with Ram Dass, Trudy and I have, um, he does a blessing ceremony in which everyone is given a, a little wrist bala, a little wrist set of beads, and tied into it is one thread from his guru's blanket from Neem Karoli Baba. Now, when I was just kind of joking around at the beginning and talking about gurus and lamas and swamis and mamas, I didn't mean to say that there aren't many, many wonderful gurus, because there are. You have to use your discriminating wisdom to, you know, sort them, because they're like anything, you know. There's all kinds of gurus. But Ramdas's guru was a really remarkable and amazing figure and um, my favorite story, actually, which he tells most every year, but this year couldn't speak as much, 
is that as he was getting ready to, he was been training and doing his yoga and his meditation and learning all the inner practices and devotional practices with his guru. And he was just happy to be living in India. And then his girl said, no, you have to go back to America and teach. And he didn't want to do that. He wanted to stay with this, this wonderful place that he was filled with love. And his guru said, no, you have to go back. And Ramda said, you know, I feel unready. I feel, um, I'm not cooked. I feel insecure. I feel impure in some ways. I want to become more pure. And his guru got up off the little kind of seat where he was resting. And he stood up and he looked really closely at Ramdas from top to bottom. And then he walked around and looked his side and then looked at him from the back and looked at him and spent like a few minutes like gazing at him and looking every part of him. And then he sat back down and quieted himself and looked Ramdas in the eye and said, I see no imperfections. And Ramda said that was a moment that really changed his life. It's sometimes, you know, um, called uh, the gaze of wonder or the gaze of love that can change everything. Um, so here's Ramdas at the end of the retreat, and he couldn't speak much. So he was sitting there, and others close to him, he blessed these malas. And then in front of him, someone would put one in each person's hand while we were all chanting. And it took a while, it took an hour, an hour and a half with some hundreds of people. And he would just look at people with so much love. And I was, I was sort of had a front row seat there. And I remembered reading about Thomas Merton, the great Christian mystic. And I've talked about it here. There is in, uh, on, uh, in Louisville, Kentucky, um, at the intersection of Fourth Street and Walnut, one of the uh, probably the only historical monument and plaque to a mystical experience that I know of in the U.S. Um, and he wrote about it. Merton said, "I came out of the monastery where we trying to do holy practices and, and, and to do shopping or whatever, and I was walking down Fourth Street, and all of a sudden I could see this secret beauty." in the eyes of everyone that I passed. He said, and if we could see each other this way, he said, there would be no no more war or hatred or greed. Uh, the big problem, we would, we would be, we would fall down and worship each other. He said, and there I was trying to be holy in the monastery and the divine, whatever you want to call it, was shining out of the eyes of absolutely everybody I passed. So I love that story. I've told it many times. Sitting there with Ramdas and watching these people file by, everybody, the woman with the triplets and the person with cancer and so forth, and all gazing into his eyes, so many people with tears, and there was such beauty in it, it because he just radiates love. That's all he said. I just love everything. I love everybody. I love everything without exception. And you could feel it. And it's been with me a lot as I drive or I've walked around because I notice that I see people and I can say, all right, this person is a friend. I like them, you know, or this person I don't know very well, somebody new or something. But then I can change the lens and I go, oh, um, I wonder who they really are, how their life is. What if they were 
um, more than a friend, you know, what if this was my sister or my brother? How would I feel? What if they were my lover, you know, or you know, my partner? What if they were my daughter, you know, or my son? And all of a sudden, as I look and I see that person and what they carry, you know, because we all carry our measure of tears and our struggles, but we also carry such beauty behind it, the fact that we're still here and surviving. And you you can start to see, you can play with awareness itself and with the lens of the heart, you can start to see the beauty in everybody. Um, and it's just a different way of walking down the street, you know, <laughs> or, or, you know, working with people. Um, and so I was, I was moved and inspired and wept a little bit and touched and mostly just reminded that this is what matters. We don't do it. I mean, I don't do it all the time either. I do my practices and try to remember. The Sufis put it this way. They say, overcome any bitterness because you were not up to the magnitude of the pain that was entrusted to you. Like the mother of the world who carries the pain of the world in her heart, we are each endowed with a certain measure of that cosmic pain. You are called upon to meet it in compassion instead of self-pity. You're part of the mother of the world. And so you see each person and they all have their troubles and they all have their beauty. And when the heart is open, you can say, oh yes, this is my daughter, this is my son, this is the, you know, the closest being in the world to me. And it changes things. But we're afraid somehow inside that our heart isn't big enough, that we'd get overwhelmed, that it's too much. So the other thing recently, two days ago, I was in Los Angeles and Insight LA, which is the Los Angeles sister centers to Spirit Rock run by my wife, Trudy, my beloved, um, a series of different centers in LA. We had our annual benefit um, and there were a number of wonderful speakers who came who do incredible work in the world. Um, and the kind of piece de resistance of the, uh, of the benefit was Father Greg Boyle, who started Homeboy Industries. Um, he's a Catholic priest. And for any of you who don't know his book called Tattoos on the Heart, which there is in the bookstore, it's one of the most moving books that I've read in years and years and years. And he's a really remarkable person. And he was talking about his ministry, if you will, because what Homeboy Industries has done now for 20 years or more is take gang kids um, in and care for them, teach them how to get a job, how to live in the world, um, support them. Um, they have all kinds of industries, you know, that they do contracts with the city to do things. They have cafes, homegirl cafe. There's one in the airport actually as well. Um, but he gets these guys and these gals who, you know, 
have been on the streets, have been part of gangs, and partly they're in part of gangs because they need a family and they need an initiation and there's nobody to care for them or initiate them. You know, if you were in the Maasai, among Maasai people and you were a young man, they'd say, all right, go and, you know, hunt a lion and come back and now we'll see you as a as a worthy man in our community or same initiations for young women. But we don't have that for our young people. So they're trying to prove themselves. Um, anyway, they do it in a kind of undeclared war on the streets. There's lots of violence, lots of shooting, lots of rivalry. And in the middle of it is Father Greg. He knows them all. He, you know, he's baptized a lot of them. He does rituals for them, for many of them. Um, and as he said, sadly, he also buries some of them. And he said, my, my work is to take the people who've been disposed of by this culture, who've been denigrated and dispossessed and thrown out of, not only on the streets, but really thrown out of people's hearts. And I bring them in and I see their beauty. And I make a real relationship with them and they love him. He's funny and he's wise, you know, and he was telling stories. He's full of amazing stories. He said, so I had these two homies come in, you know, to work. And I put him to work after a while to get them ready. I put him to work in our bakery. All right. And these guys were from rival gangs that had been shooting at each other. He said, and that's the hardest thing for me is when I have kids I love killing kids I love. I heard that line and I could just weep when I heard it. And he said, so here are these two guys. If they were out on the street, they'd be shooting at each other. But instead, they come in every morning and they're rolling croissant. They're making croissant in our bakery. Except, and he said, this is the way it is. He said, when the young women come in, they kind of want to meet each other face to face and say, okay, girl, how's it going? And he said, the guys don't do that. They kind of, it's more like shoulder to shoulder, okay. More, you know, parallel play. It's a little more primitive for guys, but that's all right. Anyway, so here they are standing next to each other, rolling the croissants and so forth. But one of these guys has a tattoo on his face that says, fuck whatever that gang is that the, that the guy next to him is in. Fuck them and kill them or something like that, you know. Meanwhile, they're making their croissants. <laughs> And after some weeks of just working next to each other, that kid, that guy, goes into their tattoo removal place, which they have as part of Homeboys, and says, I need to get this removed, which he did. And then he went back. He's still making the croissants. And then one morning he said, you know, pointed to it. It was gone. It was going, did that for you. And that was the kind of stories that he told. And you could feel his humility and his calling and his care and his bravery, you know, to see those who we cast out in some way in our culture and our time um, and see them with the eyes that Thomas Merton described or Ram Dass, the, the secret beauty. 
So I've been reading or telling stories this year, longer stories in the classes that I've done. And there's a story I want to read or tell tonight. And I have to apologize because it's a story I've used a couple of times in the last 20 years. Um, but some of you will have heard it. And you have just think about it. It's like when I hang out with my grandson, Desmond, who just turned one year old and is just this last week able to walk himself. He's sort of like drunk, you know, like one of those little drunk people, but he can do it. And half the time he, his hands are up like he's triumphant. I've done it. I can move myself. Um, but he has a lot of books and he likes to have his books read. And it's not like he hears the book and then he wants the, a new one. He wants to hear the story again, you know? Would you read that one again? So keep that little beginner's mind here. <laughs> it was Sunday, Christmas. Our family spent the holidays in the Bay Area. But in order to be back on work Monday, we had to drive the 400 miles back to L.A. on Christmas Day. Normally an eight-hour drive, but with kids it can be 14-hour endurance test. When we could stand it no longer, we stopped for lunch in King City, a little metropolis of six gas stations and three diners. Road weary, saddle sore. I sat Eric, our one and a half year old, in a high chair and looked around and thought, what am I doing in this place on Christmas Day? It was nearly empty. We were the only family. My reverie was interrupted when I heard Eric squeal with delight and glee. Hi there. Two words he thought were one word. Hi there. Hi there. He pounded his fat baby hands, whack-whack on the metal high chair tray. His face was alive with excitement, eyes wide, gums bared in a toothless grin. He wriggled and chirped, and then I saw the source of his merriment, and my eyes couldn't take it in at once. A tattered rag of a coat, obviously bought by someone else long ago. Dirty, greasy, worn, baggy pants. You know, the zipper it has masked over a spindly body toes that poked out of the old shoes, face like none other, gums as bare as Eric's, whiskers too short to be called a beard, and a nose varicose that looked like a map of New York. I was too far away to smell him, but I knew he smelled, and his hands were waving in the air, flapping about on loose wrists. Hi there, baby. Hi there, big boy. I see you, Buster. My husband and I exchanged a look that was a cross between what do we do and poor devil. Eric continued to laugh and answer, hi there, hi there. Every call was echoed. I noticed waitresses' eyebrows shoot to their foreheads and several people were going <clears throat> out loud. This old geezer was creating a nuisance with my beautiful baby. I shoved a cracker at Eric and he pulverized it on the tray. I began to get upset. Our meal came. The cacophony continued. Now the old bum was shouting from across the room. Do you know pat a cake? Atta boy. Do you know peekaboo? Peekaboo. Hey, look, he knows peekaboo. Really loud. Nobody thought it was cute. The guy was drunk and a disturbance, and I was embarrassed. My husband was humiliated. Even our six-year-old said, why is that old man shouting and talking so loud? We ate in silence, all except Eric, who was running through his repertoire, for the admiring applause of a skid row bum. 
Finally, I had enough. I turned the high chair. Eric screamed and clamored around to face his buddy. Now I was mad. Dennis went to pay the check, imploring me to get Eric and meet me out in the parking lot. I trundled Eric out of the high chair and looked toward the exit. The old man sat poised and waiting his chair directly between me and the door. Lord, let me out of here, I thought, before he speaks to us. I soon It soon became obvious that the Lord and Eric had other plans. <laughs> As I drew closer to the man, I turned my back walking to sidestep him. And as I did so, Eric, all the while with his eyes riveted to his new best friend, leaned far over my arm, reaching with both arms in a baby's pick-me-up position. In a split second of balancing my baby and turning to counter his weight, I came eye to eye with the old man. Eric was lunging for him, arms spread wide. The bum's eyes both asked and implored, would you let me hold your baby? There was no need or way for me to answer since Eric propelled himself from my arms into the man's. Suddenly, a very old man and a very young baby consummated their love relationship. Eric laid his tiny head upon the man's ragged shoulder. The man's eyes closed. I saw tears hover beneath his lashes aged hands full of grime and pain and labor, so gently cradled my baby's bottom and back. I stood awestruck. The old man rocked and cradled Eric in his arms for a moment, then his eyes opened. He said in a commanding voice as he looked directly at me, you take care of this baby. Somehow I managed, I will, I will, from a throat that contained a stone. He pried Eric from his chest, unwillingly, longingly, as though he was in pain. God bless you, ma'am. You've given me my Christmas gift. I said nothing more than a muttered thanks. With Eric back in my arms, I ran for the car. Dennis wondered why I was crying and holding Eric so tightly, and why I was saying, how could I have forgotten? How could I have forgotten? So this is really Father Greg's work, to see each person that comes through the door in that way, to see the humanity of every person. And now in the time of solstice, the kind of fertile darkness, we're called upon to see with different eyes, maybe to see with the heart, if you will, Helen Keller, says, although the world is full of suffering, or said, although the world is full of suffering, it is also full of the overcoming of it. You know, and in these times and so forth, we can feel like despairing, worried that it won't work out. This from poet and friend Dina Metzger, she writes, give me everything mangled and bruised and I will make a light of it to make you weep and we will have rain and we will begin again and this is what we do as human beings we start again or Gandhi who says when I despair 
And that's an amazing line to hear from Mahatma Gandhi, when I despair, so it's not just you, right? <laughs> when I despair, I remember that all through history, the way of truth and love is always one. Yes, there have been murderers and tyrants, and for a time they can seem invincible, but in the end they always fall. Think of it, always. So it's collective, but it's also very personal for each one of us. And for me, being with Ram Dass and being with Father Greg, it's like these saintly people. And then I think, well, am I supposed to be like them? You know, still like my ego. Okay, I could be like them. No way. You know, I can't. Um, I can't be them. I can only be me. And I remember seeing in the the movie Saint Misbehaving, which is a beautiful documentary made about Wavy Gravy. If you've never seen it, it's a great film. And at one point, there's Wavy Gravy, who's done all this great service work, working with, you know, kids in hospitals and burn units as his clown thing that he does, or you know, working in India for Save a Foundation, which has now completed its five millionth eye surgery to return sight to five million blind people. Incredible stuff. And there's Wavy Gravy, who's a sort of wondrous and ridiculous character, really he is, who I love. And he's got his altar, and he's the film is showing him making his morning prayer. And he's his prayer is something like, Dear God, please make me the best Wavy Gravy you can. <laughs> And it's sincere, you know, <laughs> and it's also wacky, but it's just right, you know. And I can sense in myself, I'm not going to be those sages and saintly people, but I can be more present. And I can be more attentive and I can be more loving and I can remember more often and I can see with the eyes of love um, and we all have this possibility. We're all both very fortunate and we're unfortunate. That's how it is being a human being. But in the middle of that, we each have the possibility for greater compassion, greater love, greater presence, greater wakefulness, greater freedom in ourselves. Hafez, the poet says, fear is the cheapest room in the house I'd like to see you in better living conditions. <laughs> so what this means is to be unafraid to be happy. How's that? Because Father Greg is happy. Ramdas is happy. The Dalai Lama is happy. You know, um, now I just named a bunch of guys. I could name <laughs> some very wonderful women who are also happy, saints and sages of all kinds. Um, I think of um, Ellen Sirleaf and Lehman Gaboy who got the Nobel Prize and they said, um, you know, Liberia used to be known for its child soldiers and now it's known for its women leaders. That the suffering isn't the end of the story but it's actually possible to turn it around. And to be unafraid to be happy, this from uh, Guillaume Apollinaire, where are you? If I can find it. He wrote, Now and then it's good to pause 
in our pursuit of happiness and just be happy. This is it. This is your life. You know, it's actually possible to be unafraid to be happy, to be unafraid to love. If fear is the cheapest room in the house. And I remember this Pfeiffer cartoon. There's a woman, she's on her knees with her arms outstretched saying, I love you. And there's a guy standing there with his arms on his chest and his the little bubble of response is, don't you threaten me. <laughs> oh, Pfeiffer's so good. To be unafraid to be happy and to be unafraid to love and to be unafraid to make a difference. Because you are making a difference by the way you live, by what you say, by how you see the world, um, by how you drive and shop and vote and all the things that make you a citizen, how you move through this world. Um, and to be unafraid to make a difference, to plant your seeds, which are beautiful, when you own the fact, your own Buddha nature, that there is more love and more compassion and more capacity to care for yourself as well as others, because that's the circle of compassion. Is this compassion for them and is it compassion for this one here? And they have to come together. And then you join in. And you join in whether it's working for climate change transformation or getting out the vote or the community garden or writing poems that transform people's consciousness or working, teaching refugees to read, you know, working in the schools or building a conscious business. But join in something that matters, where when you go to sleep, you feel like, all right, I'm also doing something very deliberate, joining the others that, that make a difference. Because this is really, it's, it's partly got to be done by you, but it also has to be done in community. Some years ago on a sunny Sunday afternoon in Seattle, a young Catholic priest stopped to talk to a parishioner and her five-year-old daughter, Carmen. The little girl had a new jump rope and the priest, being young, began to demonstrate the intricacies of rope jumping from his own childhood. Delighted, the little Carmen began to jump first once, then twice. The mother and priest clapped loudly for her skill. Eventually, the little girl was able to jump quite well on her own and wandered off with her newfound skill. Priest and mother chatted a few moments until Carmen, with sadder, wiser eyes, returned, dragging her rope. Mommy, she lamented, I can do it, but I need lots of clapping. So you have these things to plant, to change, whether it's the vote or the climate or the refugees or whatever it happens to be. But we also need each other in it. You know, E.B. White said, I wake up in the morning not knowing whether to save the world or savor it. You know, this dilemma. And of course, the answer to all these kind of Zen koans is yes. The answer is yes, to save and to savor. And so you join others in this. Mr. Rogers' mother actually was the one that told him when their things are really difficult and 
there's some catastrophe or natural disaster or a big problem. She said, don't focus on the problem, on the fire, on the hurricane. Look for the helpers. Look for the thousand people from Alabama and and, and uh, you know Georgia and various places who came with their boats. The uh, Armada, I think it was called the Cajun Navy, right? From Louisiana that went to Houston to take dogs off the roof and pick up mothers and their children. So you align yourself with those who care and you plant your seeds and it doesn't matter how long it takes Will, poet Wendell Berry says plant sequoias they take 2,000 2, years that way you get out of the head of thinking you're going to see the result and you have the joy of planting the seeds for the long term it's so mysterious don't be afraid to start anew this is the perfect time not just New Year's resolution, by the way. Um, <laughs> I got a request. I forget which magazine it was. Um, it might have been Cosmo. It was one of the kind of checkout stand women's magazines that we know. And they asked me to do an article for New Year's um, on lasting change. You know, how the New Year's resolutions go out the door after about a week or two. And I said, lasting change. You're asking a Buddhist to do lasting change. I think you've got the wrong person here. Things change, you know. But the beautiful thing about things change is you can start anew. That with this solstice, you know, and with the, with the darkness, it's called fertile darkness that the things that really matter in your heart, they can come more into the light. So start anew. Let yourself forgive the past, however it was. Um, this line, poetry, Zen poet, my old faults like snow falling on warm ground. Isn't that tender? My old faults like snow falling on warm ground and there's a way in which we can look at our past you know judgmentally we all have done all kinds of things good and not so good and then worse than that right but here's William Butler Yeats I'm content to follow to its source every event in action and thought his whole life measure the lot forgive myself the lot when such as I cast out remorse, so great a sweetness flows into my breast, for we must laugh and we must sing, for we are blessed by everything, and everything we look upon is blessed. So you forgive the past. It's done. It's gone. You start anew, and you open yourself to mystery. Because it really is mysterious. Nobody knows how we got here, really. Not to speak of where we're going. Nobody knows what's going to happen tomorrow. Somebody tell me for sure. Raise your hand. You know, I'll invest. <laughs> but we don't know. Is it going to go up or down, right? What is going to happen? It's so 
mysterious. So instead, the invitation to this mystery um, is to keep your heart open and tend it beautifully. This from Rachel Carlson, the great naturalist. She says, if I had influence with the good fairy who's supposed to preside over the birth of all children, I would ask that her gift to each child in the world would be a sense of wonder so indestructible it would last throughout life. Or as Mary Oliver put it in her famous line, I was a bride married to amazement. And the fact that we're here, that we speak and listen and communicate and come together and come apart and that we're part of this turning world that's circling our star. How can you not love it? You know, what a place we've been born, huh? Yes, there's a lot of trouble, but also, look, listen, see. Such a mystery, and we get to see it and live in it, touch it, awaken in the midst of it all. I'd like us to do a little loving-kindness practice before we do the blessing chords. And as you gaze at the earth and all the beings on it, the ones who are suffering, the ones who are happy, the ones who are causing happiness, the ones who are causing suffering, and they change around, they're not always the same, you know. And the, the animals and plants, the life that makes up this earth. All of what Chief Seattle calls the beasts he says, if what happens to the beasts happens to humankind. And begin to do the practice of loving kindness, which is to open your heart. And first, as you see this globe, to think of the people you love the most, living their lives on this mysterious earth, and wish them well. May they be safe and protected. Maybe they be healed and well in body and mind. May they be filled with the tenderness of compassion and loving kindness. May they live with a loving heart. May they be happy. And feel your well-wishing for those you love, those you're close to, moving around in this mysterious earth.
and then realize that all the others, all the other humans and all the animals, the non-humans, they all have mothers, fathers. Most have sisters and brothers. They have their struggles and their hopes and their wishes. And they're actually part of your family. Needless to say, some parts of your family don't behave so well. It's part of family, but they're part of our family, all of them. And wish, as you look at this beautiful globe, may you be free from hatred, all of you. May you be free from fear. May you remember the heart of compassion and kindness, whoever you are. May you plant seeds of goodness and happiness. And the phrase in the text on loving kindness says, spreading the spirit of loving kindness and compassion to beings everywhere in all forms, omitting none the great heart of compassion and kindness. Here we are, floating through the vastness of space and time. For we must laugh and we must sing, says Yeats, for we are blessed by everything, and everything we look upon is blessed. Send your good wishes and your blessings to beings in every form. 